Welcome to the Reimagined Podcast, a podcast that seeks to reimagine faith and life in the community as we link, learn, and live together. I'm Greg English, along with Brad Hoffman and Brian Dupuy. Today, on episode 89, we talk with Mark Maddox and Jim Estep on our response to understanding faith formation. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Hey, Greg. <laughs> Hello, Brian. Yeah. Hey, hey. That was a nice formal. You're coming along, yeah. son. Yeah, You're yeah, coming yeah. along. Yeah. It's Maturing. getting easier. It's yeah. getting easier. Good. The longer What's we do you? this. All good. All good. Good. So I got a couple things to talk about. Good. Uh, I was talking to my, my son earlier today. He was around the building, and they went out to dinner the other night. And I said, well, where'd y'all go eat? And he said, oh, well, yes. we went to mm-hmm. Burger Bach, which right. is in Richmond. is a very good hamburger place. Yes. And, uh, and they have... Great hamburger varieties, and they have great sauces to go with French fries. Yeah, they do. So yeah. I got so since then, this is like you know a couple of hours ago. I just been thinking about hamburgers. Mm. So I have found the recipe of Ernest Hemingway's famous burger. But people don't know about Hemingway. Another trivial please, please pack, tell, fact tell. I have yeah, back here yeah. is that uh, he was a food connoisseur. In fact, he's got a lot of writings and recipes on food. Hmm, really? Yeah. Now, did you stumble upon this, or were you searching out uh, Ernest Hemingway? Well, I was reading the Bonnet. No, is he like? Uh, yeah, I wonder what would Ernest Hemingway eat? Eat to hell. Yeah. 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 No, I, I stumbled upon okay. this. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. I have All right. to admit, this is not. Right. No, that's good. That's good. It, it is now, though. Yeah. So here's the deal. On um, well, let me ask this: Are you a burger purist, or you like a variety? A purist would be like. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. meat, this is salt, a whole nother level. <laughs> meat, salt, pepper kind of deal, or do you like you like you know putting a little mixture of things on, in a burger and on a burger? I'm probably traditional in like lettuce, tomato, cheese, that kind of thing. Okay, yeah. right? Yeah, I like it. I like it always. Right. Yeah. You like yeah. a smash burger? Yeah, sure. You remember yeah. the old diner smash burgers? Yeah, yeah. You ball up in a ball like a meatball, stick it in there, and pound that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So yes. you gotta go both ways. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Hemingway's deal is, though, is very interesting. Uh, ground beef, onions, garlic, India relish, and capers cook where the edges are crispy, but the center is still red and juicy, and it comes mm. on a double patty. Really? I'm, di- I'm digging the capers idea. I love capers, yeah, yeah. but I don't know about on a burger, but I'm like right. interested in this. So, uh, very famous burger that yeah. he has. Well, so where do you get this, or do you have to make you it? You make it. Okay. Yeah. Nobody's right. selling it. Nobody's selling it. <laughs> but if you go down to the Keys, you can find one of his recipe books down there. They sell his recipe books. Yeah, yeah. Along with some of the other famous books there. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. we'll post that uh, post recipe, recipe in the it. show notes. <laughs> yeah. You can have that burger. <laughs> that's right. You yeah. can do that, yeah. right? So, uh, I don't know. I just kind of drifted today when he was talking about that burger. Yeah. yeah. So, back to more important news. I want to talk about the hurricane. The hurricane? The hurricane. Oh, I should have had the song queued up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Little Bob Dylan. Yeah. 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 The Hurricane. The Hurricane. Ju- yeah. Julia Hawkins. Ah, yes. Julia Hawkins. You saw the article. I know. Tell, I us, know. tell us about it. Well, I'm just, I'm just impressed with her. She's like 105 years old, and she ran the 100-meter dash, or she sprinted, I guess, at 105 pace. Yeah. Um, but it was impressive. But the sad part of the story is that she may not get credit for it because there was an issue with the certification of the timing uh, piece, wasn't it? I yeah, think it was in the yeah. story. But my thing is, give give the woman the award. I mean, what have you done lately? 
<laughs> I mean, it's like well, if you're certainly, I don't think we want to run yeah. a a hundred uh, hundred meter dash. You deserve the award. Now she's been training since she's been hundred. So. Oh, well, sure. You got to start early. You got to start early. So she was, she's 105. She decides to run the 100 meter dash. Right. At 105. Yes. And uh, has the record, right? Yes. Because well, she should have the record. Because she's, she she's the oldest. Right. The world age record for the yeah, 100 meter right, dash. Right. Um, but they're trying to say there was a glitch. Right. An error that is going to rob her of but, this honor. Because they don't know if the gun in the shell of the gun exploded at the same time that the clock hit zero, the way they test the system. Right. Yeah. So what I'm yeah. saying is they test the system. You're supposed to test the system. But who's to say that if you test it, it doesn't that it doesn't work the next time you do it? Yeah. I mean, we're not yeah. going to make this lady run this thing again. Right. Right. Did you see the video? <laughs> no, I didn't see the video. <laughs> I just read the article. I was impressed. You know, I, they, I'm just like, she deserves it. So They it should dig a little further because I'm afraid the person who's uh, raising all the fuss is the one that's 103 years old. <laughs> previous world record yeah, holder. Is that what it is? Yeah. Is that yeah. what it is? <laughs> She's a... Uh, there's, there's a whiner to this. Yeah. you yeah. got to figure. Like, I'm 103. I've got this wrapped up. Who yeah. else is going to... And then this this 105-year-old steps in there. Yeah. And, uh, and now she's a record holder. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's fishy. Yeah. It's fishy. We need a Dateline episode on this. So, so what are you going to do? What am I going to do? Yeah, I mean, you, what have you done lately? What are you going to do? No, well, I mean, it makes me feel good at, at, at 58 that if I got somebody <laughs> running a 100-meter dash at uh, 105, I'm like, i got something to aspire to and look forward to. Yeah. And see, I think I've got time. <laughs> no need to rush into this, right? I got, you don't have to start till you're 100, man. You I got, got 60, 60 more years. years. I got 60 years before yeah. I even have to think about it. I'm going to, hey, Siri, set a reminder. <laughs> no. Oh, that's perfect. That's good. That's yeah. good. Well, so those are, those are two top things today. Have a burger tonight. Don't worry about running it. Yeah. You got time. Yeah. Enjoy it. Yep. There you go. Tomorrow. And start yeah, practicing. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 As always, start tomorrow. practicing. That's a good for, for a conversation on faith formation. Yeah, always oh, start practicing. There we go. Yes. You played right into that. Yes, you. that's right. That's Thank right. You. Well, we are going to talk about faith formation today. Yeah. It certainly seems to be uh, a, a conversation that is happening, mm-hmm. uh, for sure, in several arenas, um, as you have the great uh, resignations, the great migrations, the great disappearances. Yeah. Where is the church? Where is authentic Christianity taking place now? And how is that being formed or being shaped and all those kind of things? So today we welcome Mark Maddox and Jim Estep to the podcast. Mark is the Dean of uh, School of Theology and Christian Ministries and Professor of Practical Theology at Point Loma Nazarene University. And Jim is the Vice President of Academics at Central Christian College of the Bible. So together, along with Jonathan Kim, they've written Understanding Faith Formation, the theological, congregational, and global dimensions. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for the invitation to be a part of the conversation. Yeah, really glad to have you today. And we'll kind of Absolutely. go through some things in regard to the book. But uh, first, uh, Mark, just give a quick introduction of yourself. And then, Jim, you can you can follow that just to let the listeners know kind of where you are and in, in your journey. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, my name is Mark Maddox, and as as you heard, I serve as the Dean of the School of Theology and Christian Ministry at Point Loma Nazarene University in San Diego, California. I've uh, been here six years, and before that, I served in two other Nazarene institutions, so this is my 23rd year uh, in uh, Christian higher education. Before that, I served in pastoral ministry for about 12 years, and um uh, originally uh, from Kentucky and uh, 
grew up there and then uh, served in churches in Pennsylvania uh, and uh, Idaho and uh, um and in, in Kentucky as well. So uh, uh, it's great to great to be able to be a part of this conversation. I, along with Jim, uh, we've we've engaged in several writing projects together. And uh, I'm married. My wife uh, is a nurse, and we have two grown children. And um, so it's a, and we have two dogs. That's very important. To put that in <laughs> Mark, I just want to let you know I'm a graduate of Olivet Nazarene University. Oh, good. I won't hold that against you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you thought you were getting points on that. No, no, I just, you do. no points. I just Retraction. full disclosure. I feel like we need to uh, we need to share these things. And, and, and oh, as no, Asbury Seminary follows that statement, and we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was holding yeah, some so. back. I was holding some back. Yeah. But I want you to feel so, comfortable. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm a graduate of Asbury now University and Asbury Theological Seminary. And uh, Jim and I both went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and did our PhDs together. Great. So I, I guess I'm Jim Step. Uh, as I said before, I'm the Vice President of Academics at Central Christian College of the Bible in Moberly, Missouri. If you're going, where's Moberly? Uh, right in the middle of the state. Uh, if you can find Columbia, where the University of Missouri is, go about 30 minutes north, and that's where we're located. Hmm. And uh, I've been in higher ed for about 30 years uh, as professor and administrative roles at several institutions. Uh, but I've always tried to keep one foot in the church as well as one foot in the academy. Mm -hmm. uh, always trying to bridge that gap. That's been one of the one of my main interests is to not let the two uh, go forward in faith separate, but jointly together. That's good. So I also serve with a ministry called E2 Effective Elders, which is a leadership training ministry for the local church. Uh, I'm married. Uh, my wife's name is Karen. And uh, we have three adopted children, all of them adults. So we're empty nesters <laughs> with the exception of a cat and a dog. <laughs> and so uh, we are looking forward to Christmas when everybody gets to return uh, with their spouses and the grandkids more particularly. So oh, absolutely. we're looking forward to that. Um, I was raised in Kentucky and have done ministry in Indiana, Kentucky, uh, Michigan, and uh, in Illinois, just all over, and Georgia most recently. Yeah. That's good. Well, we're really excited to have you both on the show. So you've kind of done some work together in the past, and you went to grad school there together. Uh, quick, what was what led you to just begin the conversation of writing uh, this book on on faith formation? What, was there uh, just a trigger point, or just a aha moment over coffee one day, or what? What brought you to this point? Yeah, well, I don't know the specific conversation because we have so many, but uh, I'm sure it was probably us. Uh, thinking together about what's the next project that we want to do together. Cause Jim and I and Jonathan have been involved with a variety of different writing projects. I think that the primary reason we felt this book was important uh, kind of on two levels, I think on one level, uh, the work of James Fowler, his stages of faith development, which was written almost 40 years ago, there's been tons of, you know, uh, research and writing around his work and, we, as we looked and kind of scanned the field of uh, what's being written, we felt like there really isn't anything specifically focused around his theory as it relates to faith formation, uh, particularly from a much more kind of a uh, evangelical framework. So I think that was one thing. The other thing we thought uh, part of it was building around the strengths of the three of us. 
So uh, the book is kind of divided into three sections, uh, theological, congregational, and global. While we do write chapters that aren't necessarily in those three categories, we made sure that we were focusing on our areas of strength. And so, uh, for example, Jim gave more focus to the kind of theological side. I gave more focus on the congregational and Jonathan on the global. So uh, I think we're building off each other's areas of expertise and uh, felt like that this could be a contribution, not only for the academy, as Jim said, but hopefully something that would be applicable uh, to the church as well. So most most of our works have actually grown uh, out of those conversations we've had. Typically at a gathering we go to annually called the Society of Professors in Christian Education. And uh, we go there annually. It's in different cities. And inevitably, over coffee, we will say, what's the next project? Uh, and so what I would call that this book was born out of one of those conversations. Mm. I love those conversations. Yeah, I do, too. They're, yeah, they're, yeah. Oh. They just, I don't know, they're invigorating. I love yeah. them. Anytime anybody invites me for coffee, I'm like, what are we coming up with? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Especially yeah. after the third cup. Right? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. I applaud you for that. So, what, Jim, let me ask you, um, how, how would you define faith and explain faith formation as we start? Well, that's kind of the, uh, the quintessential purpose of the entire book is to look at what is faith. But then the second question is, you know, where does it come from? How is it formed? What can we do? What can't we do about it? Uh, you know, f- for me, faith is um, a gift. Uh, I think it does start with uh, God's impetus uh, to which we then work, if you will, in uh, securing, uh, you know, adopting, bringing in that faith um, and nurturing it. And then, of course, you ask questions. That's the formation side. How does one nurture faith? And is it just a matter of nurture? Uh, where does conversion fit into it, et cetera? So that question is, is, is actually very, very loaded in the sense that that's the entire spectrum of the book, that faith has a lot of different definitions depending on one's theological tradition and the way we understand it to be formed also reflects our theological traditions. It's, a, it's one of those instances where if you see a book on faith formation on the shelf, you really can't just say, oh, they're all going to be the same. Right. Mm-hmm. Because they're going to actually reflect the theological tradition that informs the discussion. Uh, we, coming from different backgrounds, different theological traditions, tried to uh, work it out where whatever was written in our chapters, we could agree with. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the Council of Nicaea writes a book. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, because we'd show something and, wait, 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 you can't say that. or I, I, I disagree with that. And then we'd have to iron out the wrinkle. Um, And and so once again, uh, I do think scripture speaks of faith as both something that is God given a gift, but at the same time, it's also something that we then take and nurture and grow and we're responsible for that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. And maybe I can add to that. Uh, Part of the framework when we think about faith is, we use the uh, framework of orthodoxy, orthopraxis, mm-hmm. and orthocardia or orthopathy uh, with the understanding that what how we define faith is, from orthodoxy, faith is about belief. There is a, a believing component connected to faith. 
but that faith is really, as Jim said, really faith is how it's being lived out in our practice. Uh, so depending on, you know, your particular theological tradition, my tradition would say that while belief is important, what's most important is the way in which you live out your faith. So some traditions place a heavier focus on belief and others place a heavier focus on actual practice. And then certainly that is connected to the heart, that it's it's transformative, that faith as a gift of God is transforming us and making us into uh, Christ-likeness and uh, Christ-like follower in a way that our faith is being expressed in the world to bring about transformation and change. So I think that I think that provides a good kind of a theological framework, but also a very practical framework when we think about faith. And the fact that faith has that affective domain, the heart, you know, that's the domain. It's, it's the domain of God. God's in all three. Mm-hmm. But, you know, God judges by the heart. Uh, God can change the heart of a person. Uh, and therefore, it, it has to do with uh, with that at its core. So I find it interesting that as I was reading through the book and looking at it, like, uh, you know, just the, the theological, congregational and global aspect of it. So the theological is looking at faith from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Um, and, you know, as I was kind of reading through there, I think how many people even think about think about it from that way? You know, mm-hmm. seeing faith from the Old Testament, and New Testament. And uh, in that, um, you know, faith is described in the Old Testament. Jim, you describe faith uh, rather is described rather than defined. Uh, can you speak yes. a little bit about that? Yeah, the, the, actually, if you do a, a lexical study, if you get a concordance out and look up the word faith, it isn't used a whole lot in the Old Testament. Mm. Um, but what is, is what is faith supposed to produce? Mm-hmm. You know, how, how are the behaviors of faith? What are the responses in faith? But it doesn't really talk about faith. And part of that, and I don't know if I emphasize it enough in the chapters, but in the New Testament, it's faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a saving faith, but it's also the nurturing faith. Faith in Christ is the center. Uh, our faith has this very personal relationship with God that perhaps the Old Covenant could not provide. Uh, and therefore, you know, we find faith mentioned all the time in the New Testament. And when you compare it to other writings during the first century, what you find out is this was a very unique use of the word faith. Uh, Christian faith was not like faith in other deities or faith in other religions or faith in philosophies. Christianity had a very unique take on what faith was because it was a relationship through Jesus Christ with the creator. Mm -hmm. That was the core of the Christian faith, not just in its intellect, but in its heart and in why it was doing what it was doing. I really just in reading that, it just that picture jumped out. And then you, you, you give, you give an example of that picture in our response, you know, of the mind, the feeling, the practice, you know, it goes along yes. with the combination of the Old Testament and New Testament. Well, and, and, and not to mention the fact that, um, you know, for example, as you look at the history of the church, each generation or each time period engaging the biblical text and trying to figure out what is faith now, mm-hmm. you know, like in terms of now early church, mm-hmm. uh, medieval, reformation, etc. It, it's regenerating, it's rebirthing the notion of faith 
And that's why as the church encountered different issues, you would see people talking about faith in a different light because they were answering the question when there was a different agenda theologically. Hmm. So the historical piece you know, also comes into play. That's good. That's heavy, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <It's all laughs> yeah. But the second half. I have to confess, I have to confess when, I, when we started writing the book and they said, hey, you get the theology piece. I was like, so, okay, I'm going to trace the theology of faith formation and I get 20 pages. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you did a really good job. Let me ask you this. I mean, you guys are in, and you're in a similar setting, but you're in different parts of the country. We're in different parts of the country. You're, we're seeing different conversations take place. Are people now going back to, you know, as things have changed, you're know, thinking about faith. Is there a, a deeper drive or, or desire for true formation in a spirit in, in spirituality right now, are you seeing that? I mean, you're, you're with, you're with, with kids. Uh, I'm gonna say kids. You're with undergrad students, graduate students. I mean, what is, what is that generation or what is happening uh, with folks right now? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, I, I do, I do agree that uh, this generation, uh, you know, particularly growing up in much more of a postmodern context while there's certain kind of challenges related to that, the positive side is there's a, there's a growing hun- hunger for something more, something deeper, something that has a, a great sense of mystery to it. And we're seeing this particularly among young adults um, that are, uh, you know, the old saying is, you know, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, uh, I think comes into play because they are searching for meaning beyond uh, what they maybe once knew and what their faith actually taught them. And one of the things we find is particularly students who have grown up in, uh, again, not to speak against certain kind of traditions, but uh, students who've grown up in maybe some uh, more conservative Christian, Christian context, and they feel like that they haven't been able to really think critically about their faith and ask really hard questions and struggle with their faith that they're finding it really somewhat liberating to be able to explore these deep questions of their faith and, and to do that in a way engaged in practice. I think what we, what we're finding is, uh, you know, many students and, and like myself, when it came to our spiritual lives, our personal spiritual life, it was more like, okay, get up early and pray and read your Bible. And that's how you become spiritual. And one of the jokes I tell students all the time, I said, well, that never worked with me because God's never up in the morning when I get up. Um, uh, and, and there's some truth to that in the sense that uh, we were kind of programmed to think that spirituality was formed in certain kinds of ways. But that now with the, the emergence of reconnecting historically to spiritual practices, um, you know, we talk. We don't really spend a lot of time talking about practices in this book uh, around personal practices. We spend a lot of time talking about corporate practices, and that's somewhat intentional. That's a distinctive about our book because a lot of books focus on, you know, more personal practices, which is really helpful. But this book was was we're focusing on that faith is being formed in the context of community and particularly mm-hmm. around the church. Now, the dichotomy of that is one of our chapters is about the fact that we have so many young adults who are just re- religiously, they're nuns, right? Mm-hmm. 
They have no faith. And that continues to grow. So it's a bit of a dichotomy in our book where we say on the one side, there's this growing sense in which there's religious nuns. But on the other side, we're saying that formation needs to happen in the context of the church. And so um, I think that's probably something we could have fleshed out more. And I think that's a broader discussion that needs to be had. And uh, so to answer your question, I would say, yeah, there is a, a growing sense of hunger for deeper things spiritual. And I find that as they're learning about these more historical practices, like, say, Lectio Divina mm-hmm. or uh, Examine, for example, uh, the practices that's been around the church for you know hundreds of years, they're kind of drawn to it because it's new, it's different, and it expands their awareness of what it means to grow in their faith. If I could chime in on that, uh, I mean, my institution is primarily an undergraduate school. We have a graduate placement service. And when you hear that, you begin thinking, oh, job placement. Seniors show up looking for a ministry, looking for a job, something. We actually take it a little differently because of the kind of student we see coming in. Uh, we started their freshman year, not with what do you want to do with your life? That's the old parent question. But have you discerned God's call on your life? And they're looking, you know, this generation, the millennials and now Gen Z, they're not looking for a job. They're not looking for a career. They want to fulfill something greater. Uh, and so it's not a matter of, uh, you know, taking the job because it pays more right. or taking the job because it's going to have uh, upward mobility. They're going, does it fulfill? Mm-hmm. You know, they have a, a, so this idea of of spiritual discernment of your call uh, seems to really resonate with a lot of the younger generation that I'm not sure would have in mind, for example. Uh, they seem to be wanting that. And when I think of the nuns, you know, the nuns aren't anti-religious necessarily. They're anti, they just see it as irrelevant. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's more, you know, a, a point at the church that it needs to be relevant, address constructively what's going on in society, um, and let, you know, as, as Mark put it, be a safe place where if I have a question about faith, I can raise my hand and say, I'm, I'm wrestling with this without the threat of somebody saying, well, you shouldn't believe that, and you shouldn't be thinking that way, and this isn't the place to raise that question and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know that's, and they back off. And all of a sudden church is not a place to go raise questions, seek answers, find faith. They do it on Google. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Or at the is, coffee bar. Is that, yeah. it, is that why um, when you said uh, you chose to talk about faith and faith formation within the community? And I'm wondering if you could say a, a bit more about why you chose that as opposed to individual faith practices yeah i think i think that the primary reason is a really theological a theological reason uh to think about that faith is primarily formed within the context of the church now certainly this is a discussion about kingdom and versus church right or ecclesiology so I, I would say that our ecclesiology uh would state that we believe that the local church or the faith community is the place by which faith is formed 
Uh, not that it's not formed outside of that. We're not limiting that, but we would say that it is is what God has called forth in the world as a place where uh, faith is being developed. Um, so, for example, the, the second part of the book around congregational formation, we talk a lot about the practices within the church that does shape our faith. And part of that's telling our story and entering into the story, the Christian story, and how we participate with that. And I would say that young adults are, are drawn to that as well because they didn't grow up understanding what the lectionary meant. They didn't grow up understanding that there's, uh, you know, uh, the mystery around the Eucharist or communion. Uh, these practices were not a part of their life. And they're saying, we want, back to Jim's point, we want, we want more meaning and we want to discover that meaning. And so help us connect to those things. Um, again, we're being a little bit, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a generalization, but uh, we're finding that that was part of the, what drew us to focus on the more communal aspect of faith. Um, and that may represent some of Jim and I's own tradition. While he's uh, from a different tradition than ours, we have a lot of overlap. And part of that would be focused on around seeing salvation as more communal than really individual and the sense of kind of pushing against kind of a uh, more of a Western understanding of faith that is highly individualistic and less communal. You know, the that's one of the, in fact, I'd like to dig a little deeper in that question um, about faith formation in congregations. Uh, that's one of the things that drew me to the book. And I was actually at Center for Pastor Theologians back um, last, what, a couple months ago, a month ago, whatever it was, and and picked it up. And um, that's the chapter that drew me at <laughs> first. And maybe that's because as a pastor, I'm looking at how do we reimagine faith and life and ministry in post-pandemic, pandemic world and life and with all these things, the nuns and, yeah, just we just have so many you know, things are different, you know, and and so how do you do that? So I'm, I'm keenly interested in like a community of faith, a church. Um, what are those what are those compelling practices? And can we dig a little deeper into that? Um, obviously, story is one of those. That's one of the things we talk a lot about here. But what would you um, how would you identify those or what are some of the practices that encourage faith formation in congregations? I know Mark can probably speak to this a lot better than I can, but but I wanted to bring this up. I, I think one thing that's really wanting in North American culture, I've, I've done a little work in Canada, for example, with churches and colleges. But but one thing I'm finding is faith is great when it's you know me and the Lord. Mm. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. It's a, that, you know, individual faith. Uh, I'm not even going to say anything. I'm going to let you go. <laughs> but it's like, but then when, when you go, but you know, when uh, there's obviously something missing, if that's all it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we're talking about going to church, which yeah. means me as an individual gets up, goes to the building, right. does my thing. And do I leave? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that idea of belonging and building community that part of my identity as a a believer, as a person of faith, is I am not part of the world. I'm not part of the neighborhood. My primary identity is in Christ and 
my primary community is going to be the, in the presence of other Christ followers. And so I don't, I do think it's a lot about our identity mm-hmm. and that his faith is about becoming something different. Mm-hmm. Uh, faith is something where conversion, yes, there may be one point that you're converted, but you're also going through perpetual transformations. Right, right. Yeah. And, and that's, that's only done in the context of faith, mm-hmm. uh, where you're around other faithful people. And I'll, I'll let Mark embellish or contradict or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I'm good at embellishing. Um, well, I mean, I think you, start, you first have to begin to think about what is spiritual formation or faith formation. And I think, particularly in a Western context, very consumer approach, you know this as pastors and leaders, that people are looking for, you know, what's going to make them feel good or what, you know, are their kids being taken care of? And all those are good things. Those aren't bad. But it really comes down to the reason that we are formed spiritually is not for ourselves, but for the sake of others. Mm -hmm. And so the church plays a significant role in the formation of faith. And when I say church, I'm saying here, uh, you know, this could be defined pretty broadly. It could be what happens on a Sunday morning, or it might be a small group. It might be a Bible study. It might be a house church. There's all different ways to talk about community, right? right? And if we go back to Acts 2.42, of course, the early church gathered together, fellowship, broke bread, and uh, and gave gave uh, teaching of, of the apostles' teachings. So that was kind of the, the sense of koinonia um, and the role that community plays in forming faith. And so in the chapters, we talk, there's a long history of research and writing and religious education that focuses on the social dimension of faith. And that faith is formed through social interaction. So we often think faith is only like a vertical thing between us and God. But in reality, it's social. You know, I'll have people say things like, well, you know, you really can't trust. You should never really trust a person's faith. Just place your trust in God. And my response is always, no, that's not true. Because the only way I know about trusting God is through people, right? Mm-hmm. They provide the mentoring example of what faith is. Um, and so the community, uh, you know, John Wesley is a part of my tradition would say there's no holiness, but social holiness. He's not talking about social justice. He's talking about koinonia mm-hmm. that, that salvation is not uh, solely individualistic, that it's dependent upon the relationships we have with other, other people, other Christians. So uh, to get to your question, some of the practices that we talk about here are not necessarily new practices. We talk about um, the, the important role that worship plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, think about the songs that we sing. Often the words, the language is first person, not, you know, not uh, we and us, it's I. And even those kind of nuanced changes, I think, uh, communicate this communal kind of living. Uh, the gathering around the Eucharist, um, I'm a strong advocate for sacramental theology as a, as formative in the life of the of the person, because it is a part of the story. It's a part of the narrative that that these benchmarks in your life that you go back to and say, "Yeah, I remember when I was baptized. I remember that I did this at the table." Or these rituals that are part of our lives. A lot of those rituals have been taken away, and so we wonder why this sense of corporate memory 
uh, or s- spiritual memory, if you will, is, is being lost. Mm. It's because we've actually, uh, in an attempt to try to reach people, we've actually stripped away some of the very basic things that actually forms their faith and reminds them of, uh, of their deep commitment to, to Christ and to the church. So, um, and we see this, especially among college students, um, where, uh, again, nothing wrong with praise and worship, but it's all about praise and worship. And so there's, there's really no um, rituals or practices within the communal life that shapes them. So it's not just worship, it's service, it's compassion. How do you gauge people in compassion? I have another little book I wrote several years ago called Missional Discipleship that focuses on formation actually can happen in the context of serving in community, not so much around kind of a more pietistic way to think about faith. Mm-hmm. So the book, we're trying to help kind of re-gear back, if you will, a certain kind of ecclesiology that's essential to faith. So this question, if, if I could just jump in real quick, though, yeah. there's also a, a danger at not having, you know, the you have that vertical dimension of faith, but there's also that horizontal dimension. Mm-hmm. And there's a danger at eliminating the horizontal dimension. And we actually see it in um, the, the minor prophets uh, and not to turn this into Bible study, but in the minor prophets, numerous times the prophet condemns. His, his hearers, because they think they're pious because they have a great relationship with God, and therefore they can do anything they want to their neighbor. Mm. And he is constantly telling them, you cannot mistreat your neighbor and say that you love God. Same way with James in the New Testament, or even John's epistles, uh, that, that our relationship with God has to be reflected this way. And that's that communal presence. Uh, and so when we say, oh, that communal presence isn't necessary, it's all about just you and him, we're missing something, and it is actually dangerous because both the Old and New Testament affirm that's a crucial part of having faith. But, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because I do think that when I grew up in a tradition where it was vertical. Yeah. And yeah. so from that standpoint, it's the emphasis has always been on that. And even if what we've been through with elections and all that kind of stuff and politics, you know, people focusing on this vertical and there's just no horizontal communal or, or it's, it's diminished or missing. And so that's I think that's really the part to reimagine for churches and, and for communities of faith that we have to reimagine the horizontal piece. I mean, I know with, with life groups and what we're doing there and and just as a community, what we're trying to do, but um I think that's a significant factor because uh, I, I know too many people have said, well, let's just, I'm not just going to have a Bible study. And if I can just get enough this and, and there again, I know there's a question we had for you in terms of uh, scriptures, information versus formative, you know, and, and understanding the difference, because I think that's a reimagined piece for people because there's uh, a lot of disciples have this information mindset versus formative mindset. And, um, and I'll let you all answer that in a minute, but you were going to say something, I think. No, I just, it's uh, social holiness is messy too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, it's much cleaner, just me and God in my, in my war room. Me know? and God <laughs> in my justification. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I can avoid all kinds of, of, uh, of 
uncomfortable situations or, you know, um, I, I'm missing out. It, uh, I'm missing the fully formed life. But um, I've got this image it's, of an it's messy. Yeah. <laughs> so something, something, uh, something went through my mind there. And, and this is not uh, necessarily majorly part of our discussion, but I can't but think when we're talking about culture and we're talking about the need for the communal and the social aspect of community that goes along with it. Culturally today, we, we talk about this hybrid model and we talk about the online platform and we talk about the online church. And now you're looking at a whole new web formation, this this web threes coming out and you got animated uh, options of religious cartoons and things like that. And do you have any quick take on that uh, idea and how that relates into staying communal or whether it's not communal? That may be a dangerous question because it could just go anywhere. <laughs> that wasn't on the list, but <laughs> no, it's chasing a, it's a rabbit. A good, it's a good question. I mean, uh, Jim and I both, you know, teach in the online environment. I've been, I started doing online teaching back in 1998, way ahead of the game, uh, particularly in theological education. And this is a big question, right? And theological education or education in general is, can a person's life be formed and shaped from a distance? Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of, you know, arguments on both sides of this. But one one argument for it was that you think of Paul's ministry. Most all of Paul's ministry was from a distance. Uh, He wrote letters. Mm -hmm. He had visited these these different churches. But the majority of his ministry was corresponding uh, and writing letters to the churches and had a very distant kind of relationship. And I think we'd all agree that Paul had a pretty formative role Mm -hmm in shaping uh, the early church. Um, so that's just one example we could talk about yeah. a lot. I was just getting uh, a quick snap of it. It just, it hit yeah, me and I yeah. feel like. But, but just to, just to answer your question, I think that if, if those kind of communities are set up with the kinds of structures in place that, that help people be, whether they're embodied or disembodied uh, ways in which they have points of discipleship or accountability, then certainly that can that can work as well. There is a, there is a very good resource beyond our book that talks about spirituality in a communal context, and it's by Jim Wilhoyt. It's spiritual spiritual formation as if the church mattered, mm-hmm. and he was dealing with some of the same concerns that were treating spirituality and spiritual formation as an individual item in the absence of the church, when in fact. God gave the church to produce spiritual formation as a means, a context for it to occur. And he tries to reunite the individual personal idea of spirituality with a corporate spirituality and a corporate formation process. So it's, it's a good resource to use, you know, after you read ours. That's good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So just uh, from that, from a question, just in terms of we talk about practices and practices in the church and we talk in terms of uh, congregational formation or faith formation in congregation. One of the questions, one of the conversations was about scripture is informational or formative, um, because I think there's a for some it's it's informational. Um, can, you, can you kind of kind of separate that out for us a little bit? Yeah, I mean, uh, historically, you know, certainly the reason that scripture or the Bible was given to the church was primarily in order to help uh, early believers be followers of Christ. Uh, in other words, scripture wasn't 
ever given to us, again, this is before we have creeds and doctrines, Scripture was never given to us as a means to formulate propositional truths or to develop some kind of uh, source book, if you will, about how to live the Christian life. In reality, Scripture was given to us because we believe that that it's God-breathed and that God speaks not through the, the magical words that's on the page, but that God actually... Uh, in our tradition, we talk about this as double inspiration. In the same way that God inspired those who wrote the books of the Bible and put them together is the same spirit that inspires us when we read it. Mm. Um, And so to think of Scripture really more as a way in which we can read it and meditate upon it, reflect upon it, such practices like Lectio Divina, sacred reading of Scripture, um, I think can help us kind of reimagine and reappropriate scripture in a way that's very formative and transformative in our lives. And then it moves us away from, because the reason most people don't read the Bible is because they don't understand it. They can't, they can't figure out what it means. And so if you can move that question away and say, well, don't read it to think about what it means, read it to allow it to speak into your life is a different approach uh, to read in scripture. And uh, uh, I've written about this in other places, and I found that there's quite a bit of movement, again, uh, for people reappropriating the Bible when they begin to see it as uh, more transformative, um, and it places a higher view of the role of the Spirit, that the Spirit's working, not just as I read it individually, but again, reading it collectively and allowing uh, Lectio Divina can be done in a group setting by which the community is actually allowing the Spirit to work uh, to uh, appropriate the Bible into our lives. That's good. And if I can just add, I mean, one of the most commonly quoted passages about the Bible is 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16. All Scripture is breathed out or inspired by God. And we usually stop there, you know, what does that mean? But we forget what the rest of the verse says. It's not about what does it mean. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Uh, I think one translation said, and is useful, that scripture was given for a purpose. You know, more than just being understood, it was to be useful in preparing us to live a godly life, uh, to form our faith. Um, and so I think that transformative element of scripture is even mentioned in the scripture itself. That's good. That's good. Uh, faith formation certainly is, is something that just is here today and, and done. It's a oh, we continual, pro- a continual <laughs> process. <laughs> sure. But I do, I do want to uh, give um, uh, knowledge to the book again, entitled Understanding Faith and Formation, Theological, Congregational, and Global Dimensions. And certainly want to say thank you to both Mark and Jim for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for the opportunity to have conversation with you. And I should ask, yeah, I should ask, um, where can people find any other resources for each of you? Uh, You can certainly go to Amazon, uh, type in my name, Jim's name. I think you'll find plenty of the books and resources that we've written. 
All right. Very good. Well, thank you again for being on the podcast and thank you for listening to the Reimagine podcast. As always, you can follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast and download any of the episodes and rate them and check us out on the reimaginedcast.com website. So for Brad and Brian, I'm Greg. Thanks for listening to the Reimagine podcast. Thank you.